Ephesians chapter 6 is what we're studying today. It's on page 1160. Before we start, uh, just, well, actually, two things. One, uh, get it out of the way here. The new Lord of the Rings movie is so good. It's so good. It's, it's not just the best of the three. It's like one of the best movies I've ever seen. It's amazing. Okay, I got that off my chest. Now, um, the second thing I wanted to uh, uh, just remind you is that Christmas Eve is coming. We're having it on the 24th this year. And uh, it's going to be at four. We have three services. They're identical. So you come to any of them, same message, same music. Uh, services are at 4 p.m., 6 p.m., 8 p.m. Uh, my suspicion is, based upon past years, 6 p.m. is going to be the fullest. So if you can aim toward 4, or and 8 p.m. is usually the, the lowest. So, so just to kind of make room, I don't know if you uh, knew this, but we sent out these mailers into the whole town of Hingham. Every household got one. Uh, it's an invite to their candlelight Christmas Eve services. So uh, I, I'm guessing people will tend to come towards 6 p.m. That some ways that's kind of the most convenient. So if you feel so led, I would encourage you to try to aim for one of the other ones just as a way of making room for people who maybe have uh, coming here for the first time. And uh, so keep your eye out. Be praying. Have, have a warm welcome for anyone you see uh, those evenings. And there's, you see these mailers, there's actually extras out in the foyers, a little blue table when you leave. If you know some people that you want to invite to Christmas Eve, grab one of these mailers and bring it to them, and you can hand it to them this week and just have a nice little invite. And it's classy and tasteful and, uh, you know, something you would be proud to hand to somebody. So keep that in mind. As far as the help, I think our nursery help is all there. We may need a few ushers still in the different services. So if you're interested in ushering, It'd be nice to have three or four people just welcoming people as they come through the door. You know, grab me after the service, shoot me an email this week, give a call to the church office, and we will uh, uh, hook you up with that. It'd be a wonderful way to serve in this Christmas outreach. Okay, that said, let's look at Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 20, which is the text we are in. For those of you just joining us, we're near the end of a sermon series in Ephesians. Ephesians 6.10 says... Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the Gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Let's pray, shall we? We worship you, O Lord, because you are the ancient of days. Before there was anything, you were. Before the world ever existed, before one angel sang your praise, 
You existed in the glorious, rapturous beauty of the Trinity into eternity past. You are the all-sufficient, all-glorious, awesome God. And we thank you, Lord, that you made this world for us. We thank you that you've given us families and lives and relationships, that you've given us provision in this world. You've given us a beautiful world to live in. And yet, Lord, we confess that we have squandered everything you've given us. That as a human race, Lord, we have not walked with you. We have gone our own way. We have uh, worshipped our own man-made versions of God rather than coming to the true God. And what we thank you at this Christmas time, that even though we deserve to be written off by you, even though we deserve to be decreated, that you sent the Lord Jesus Christ to save us. That you sent the Lord Jesus Christ to walk among us, to, to be born in a, a manger, to, to walk our roads and to eat our food and ultimately to experience our sins on the cross. It's astounding what an awesome God you are. And so as we come to study your, your word this morning, I pray that you would show us the beauty, the glory, the majesty of Jesus Christ. Just as people at this time of year go by big light displays to see the lights, we want to drive close to Christ this morning and see his beauty and his majesty and, and behold him as the light of the world. But Lord, we can't do that without your spirit helping us to do that. We are spiritually blind without your spiritual empowerment. So Lord, heal our eyes. Help us to see Christ this morning as we study about him in the word. We pray this in Jesus' name. It was uh, Karl Marx, the father of communist philosophy, who uh, coined the uh, famous phrase that religion is the opiate of the masses. You probably heard that one. Well, you know, if, if Christianity is an opiate, then, dude, I'm having a bad trip. Uh, <laughs> Christianity is hard. It's hard. It, it, it's not just some sweet little lullaby that keeps me, you know, oblivious to the trials of the world, following Jesus is difficult. It is a constant struggle. From the moment you start following Christ, beware because the boom is going to be lowered. Following Jesus is kind of like uh, traveling northbound on the highway, except you're driving in the southbound lane. That's what it feels like following Christ sometimes. I'm trying to follow Christ, but there's all this stuff just coming at me, and, and I'm holding on white knuckle for my life just trying to follow him. There's, there's my own natural tendencies and proclivities. Uh, as the Bible uh, calls it, I, I have a sin nature, or the Bible calls it the flesh. There, there's this principle within me that wants to go Jeremy's way and to do Jeremy's thing instead of God's thing. So I got that going against me. But then on top of that, there's also this world in which I live that seems to be going this way when I'm trying to follow Christ that way. And it's extremely difficult when everything in the culture, the media, the, uh, uh, the, the structures of society, the conversations in the office, everything seems to be pushing me away from Christ and holiness. And so I have the world against me. But what we've been studying here in Ephesians is that there's a third obstacle to following Jesus, and that is that there is a spiritual opposition. And that's what we've been studying here in Ephesians 6. Then in addition to my own tendencies, which is a big enough problem, and in addition to the world all around me that's pushing against my faith, there is a malevolent spiritual intelligence behind the world. There is a, we've been saying this, there is a real 
devil. Not just a symbol, not just a myth. There is a real being, there are real beings that oppose my Christian life, that work through the systems of society and work through my own sin nature to oppose the Christian life. But Christianity is hard. I don't know what the skeptics are talking about when they say that Christianity is a crutch for the weak-minded. I, it's not a crutch. It's challenging to follow Jesus. Everything within me and everything inside me and everything in the spiritual realms is arrayed against me. So how could I possibly follow Christ? And the answer we see in Ephesians 6 is I need Christ's strength. I need the armor of God to do it. And this is important. Christianity is not a self-help religion. It's not, hey, here's six tips, and if you do these, you're going to improve your stress management, or you're going to improve your whatever. It's not self-help, some helpful guidance. Christianity is a supernatural religion where we say, I can't, and I need some supernatural aid from beyond the natural realm in which I live to break through and empower me to live this life. If you're really going to be a Christian, you're going to need supernatural aid because it's that hard. And so Ephesians 6 is all about that supernatural aid. It's all about the fact that there is an armor of God for us, that God can enable us to live for him in the difficult thing called the Christian life. In fact, we've been studying here in Ephesians. Verse 13, you look there. It says, put on the full armor of God. You've got to have God's armor. So that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. And then last week, we began looking at the different pieces of the armor. If you were here, we started picking the armor apart, looking at it piece by piece. Stand firm then with the belt of truth. You see that in verse 14? The breastplate of righteousness. Verse 15, your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel. Well, this Sunday, what I want to do is just keep uh, working through this passage and come to, to the next two pieces of armor. And then uh, the Sunday after that, we'll look at the final piece of armor. But uh, today I want to look at the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation. So first of all, the shield of faith. It says in verse 16, In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. The imagery here is of a Roman soldier. I, I don't know if you've seen pictures of Roman soldiers. they got those big shields. And, and this is the, the Greek word that Paul's using. Not a little round buckler, but a big old Roman shield. Uh, you know, four feet high, and they're maybe two, two and a half feet across. And the, the, the Roman shield was big enough to protect the whole soldier. So that if there was a volley of arrows, the soldier could duck down behind the shield, and it would protect his whole body. The shield was kind of armor for your armor. And maybe you've seen this in movies where there's a Roman column marching, like a movie Gladiator, if you've seen that in the beginning. There's this big Roman uh, warfare scene, and, and all the Roman soldiers are, are marching in these columns, and the, the enemy, these Germanic hordes, they, they launch out a volley of arrows. And, and a, this, a command is given, and all the soldiers in unison put their shields over their heads, and they form this kind of iron box. And as the arrows fall down, they ting, 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 you know, bounce off the, the shield. That's the idea of it. So, so the shield is to protect the whole person. And one of the things they also did in warfare in those days was they would sometimes wrap the, sh the arrows or wrap the, uh, sometimes it's javelins or spears, they'd, they'd wrap the end of it in tow and in pitch and they light it on fire so that there'd be these flaming arrows coming through. And the idea was if your shield caught on fire, even if you blocked it, you know, your shield would catch on fire and people would freak out and throw their shields down and break ranks. And so, so fire was also used with the darts in order to scatter the opposition. So what some of the Roman soldiers did, one of the practices was, before they went into battle, 
they would sometimes immerse their shields in water and, and just soak them with water and pull them out dripping wet. So they'd be walking around with these wet shields, and then when the flaming arrows would come, it'd be like, you know, you know, sort of like it would extinguish the arrows. So that's the imagery here. That, that's the picture that's, uh, that Paul is painting for us, that there is a devil out there who is shooting flaming darts, he's shooting flaming arrows, he's throwing flaming javelins, he's hurling flaming spears at us. And if we're going to protect ourselves, we need faith. We need faith in Christ. Faith is our protection against the attacks of the evil one. Just as the shield is the armor for the armor, so in a sense, faith is the Christian virtue for the virtues. You have to have faith. Faith is, is the foundation of living in Christ. It, it supports everything else. Faith is so essential. What does Paul say in Romans? He says, whatever does not come out of faith is sin. So everything in my life has to proceed from faith in God, otherwise it's not acceptable to God. Even if it's do-gooderism and good deeds, if it's not coming out of faith in Christ, it, it's not pleasing to God because it's done for other motives. So, so faith is this crucial element. And it's like that shield. We have to have the shield of faith. So if we're going to stand our ground against the enemy, if we're going to stand our ground against the devil, we have to have this faith in Christ. Maybe I should define faith really quickly. You know, it's one of these church words we throw around, faith. You know, but what, what does it mean? Faith is used in a lot of different ways and different contexts. Uh, often, I think, we use faith as the equivalent of belief. I think that's how it's typically used. Like, like I have faith that there's a God. You know, I believe there's a God out there. And, and so it's sort of this mental assent to a truth. Yeah, yeah, I, I have faith. I, yeah, there's a God out there somewhere. It doesn't really affect how I live, but, you know, I believe is out there. It's kind of like Pluto. Yeah, I, I believe Pluto's out there. I believe there's electrons. You know, I've never really seen them, but, but I believe it, and, and I think there's enough reason to trust the scientists, even though I've never seen one. And so I have faith that there is a planet called Pluto. I have faith that there is such a thing as electrons. And I think sometimes we, we talk about faith that way with God, like, well, yeah, there's, there's a God, uh, yeah. In fact, a survey show most Americans believe in God in some form or another. There's very few real atheists in America today. Atheism is not a rampant problem in America. It's more, you know, sort of a nominal, superficial belief, like, yeah, yeah, there's a God out there somewhere. There has to be, but, you know, I don't really know how that impacts my life in any way. But when the Bible talks about faith, it's not just believing some factoid with my head. The best, maybe, translation of the word faith in the Bible is trust. It's dependency. It's putting ourselves out there. It's not just saying, yeah, there's a God somewhere, but it's saying, all right, God, I'm going to trust you. Here it goes. And we fall off over the cliff and trust that God is going to catch us and take care of us. We really risk our lives and put them in the hands of a God in whom we believe. That's trust. It's like this story, this anecdote that's been told many times. Um, you, you may have heard it. It's uh, about this tightrope walker named Blondin. He was one of the, the great tightrope walkers in his day. And uh, he was one of, I, maybe the first or one of the first guys to go across Niagara Falls. And uh, apparently one of the times he was going across Niagara Falls, there's a huge crowd there cheering him on. And he, and he gets across Niagara Falls and the crowd's like, and he says, you know, do you guys think that, that I could do this again except with somebody on my back? <sighs> oh, you can do it, you can do it. So he says, okay, who wants to hop on my back? <laughs> you know, the, <laughs> the crickets, everyone's looking around. That's the difference. 
See, I think there's a lot of Americans that go, yeah, there's got to be a God. But will we get on God's back and let him carry us over the impossible trials and tribulations of life? Will I trust God with my happiness? Hmm? Will I trust God with, with my, look, my quest for satisfaction in this life, my quest for joy? Will I really trust him with it? Or will I go with the shortcuts of the world? And so Satan would shoot these darts at us. And the only real protection against them is to grab hold of faith and trust in God, that God is good, that God loves me, that God has a good plan for my life, and just get down and hide behind that faith. That's how we shield ourselves from the evil one. Let me think with you just a little bit about how this works out, practically speaking, on a day-to-day basis. Uh, you know, how does Satan attack us? What does that look like? Well, you know, we could probably go on for a whole sermon series just on ways that Satan attacks us. In fact, huge books have been written. The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis is just a book describing the different ways that, that the devil tries to get at us. Or if you go back a little further to the time of the Puritans, uh, the, the famous Puritan preacher Thomas Brooks wrote a book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And it's a whole book just about ways Satan attacks us and the ways we need to defend ourselves. So he has a multiplicity of attacks, and we can't get into it all this morning, but let's just think of one big one. One of the ways that Satan attacks us, one of the ways he shoots the fiery arrows at us, is through affliction, through trials, through suffering. Things befall us in life that make no sense if we believe in a loving God. We believe there's a God who loves me, but why is this happening? And Satan uses those instances to come up alongside us and put his hands on our shoulder and whisper in our ear, where is God in all of this? If there's really a loving God that you've been following, where is he in all of these circumstances? And he wants to sow that seed of doubt and, and fear and anger in our hearts against God. I think of the classic example of this in, in the Bible Maybe you think, first person that comes to mind, of course, Job. He's the hyper example of testing and affliction and trials. The Bible says Job was a blameless man. He loved God. He prayed to God. In fact, his kids would have a feast, and he was so scrupulous in his faith that he would go offer sacrifices for his children, thinking just in case they strayed from God, I want to make sure they're covered. I mean, this guy really wanted to honor God. And so as the story goes in the book of Job, one day God is in heaven, and Satan comes in, and God says, hey, Satan, you see Job? He's my man. That's a loose translation from the Hebrew. And uh, he's like, you know, check this dude out. Yeah, he's blameless. And Satan goes, well, of course he's blameless. You've blessed him to death. I mean, he's got huge flocks. He's obviously, you've, you've made him, you know, you spoiled the guy. Take away that stuff. Take away his flocks, his herds, and his family, and Job will curse you to your face. And, and God says, okay, you're on. Take it away. Just don't touch him. And, and so God permits Satan to unleash the worst suffering that, that's perhaps recorded in human history, the, the, the worst suffering. All of Job's flocks and herds in one day are swept away. He goes from being a, a livestock tycoon to totally destitute. And in that same day, his, his uh, kids are feasting in a house, and Satan sends a big wind along, and it, boom, knocks down the house, and all the family is killed. So in one day, he goes from proud father to childless. And, and he just falls into the dust, and he can't believe it. But you see, Satan's goal was not to make Job poor. 
Satan's goal was to use those things so that Job might curse God and stop believing in God. And then came the moment of faith. Would Job still hold on to his trust in a good God in the midst of those trials? Or would he give in to the whisperings, the diabolical whisperings in his ear, where is God in this? What kind of God would do this to you? You've been blameless. Think of all the sacrifices you offered. And now he's done this to you? And, and that's what happens in life. Things befall us. Maybe not as bad as Job, but pretty bad. You know, the, the, the dump truck of garbage backs up to us in life and just beep, beep, you know, dumps on us and we get buried. And I've noticed just being in pastoral ministry that it tends to happen like that. It, very often it'll be one week you're fine, the next week people just get slammed by all this stuff and you're like, where is this coming from? And, and all these things come on people. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's the, the woman I talked to two years ago called me on the phone, a friend of mine, and she says, you know, I, we finally had our baby. And I said, yeah. And she says, it was stillborn. <laughs> what do you say? You, you know, I, I'm sorry. They, they can't train you for that in seminary. You, you're just like, wow. And you pray for faith to know how to, to respond in that situation. What do you do when that happens to your child? What do you do when, when your parents get a divorce? What do you do when, um, you know, there's, there's chaos and strife in the family or you're scheduled for some catastrophic surgery because of some horrible thing going on in your life and these things happen to you and that's when Satan saddles up next to us and goes, what is this all about? You're a Christian and this is happening to you? Man, you picked the wrong ship. You're going down. You need to get off this ship. You need to forget this God stuff. Hasn't done you any good. And those are the whisperings. I talked to a woman uh, earlier this year, not anyone that goes to our church, but an, a woman I know, and uh, she, her 80-year-old her, uh, uh, father passed away. And, and she called me, and, and uh, we were talking, and she said, you know, I, I'm so angry at God. How could God let this happen? And I'll be honest with you, uh, there's a part of me that was thinking like, well, I mean, he's 80, 80-something. 80 I mean, no offense to you, any octogenarians here, but, <laughs> you know, when you get about 80, death happens. And, uh, and, and so it's like, well, you know, I'm listening. I'm like, well, yeah, he was old. He led a good life. I mean, he had a rich life, a lot of good family. And, you know, what, you know, but, I, but I'm still listening. I'm being sympathetic. I'm like, mm, and she's like, I'm just so angry at God. And yeah, it doesn't really make sense to be mad at God because of course people die when they're 80, but that's not the point. The, the point is not rationality and logic. See, sin is not logical at all. That's the thing about sin. It's totally irrational. And, and so when Satan attacks us, it's not logical or rational. He's just going for our heart. And he'll use any circumstance, even something that's commonplace like the death of a, a parent. Of course you're going to grieve when your father dies, even if he is 80-something and he has cancer and he lived a long life. Of course you're going to grieve. And Satan comes to those moments of emotional weakness, and that's when he whispers in our ear. It doesn't have to make sense. It doesn't matter. He's just trying to get us to doubt God. And, and so this person is like, I can't believe it. God is letting this happen. And those are the moments where I have to grab the shield of faith and say, you know what? I don't get it, God. I don't know why this is happening. This makes no sense. I cannot do the numbers and come out with, this is why this is happening to me. It makes sense. But I believe that you love me. You've shown it to me in the past. The Word, the Bible says you love me, that you are in control. You have a good plan. And so just in faith, I'm going to get on your back. I'm going to ride across Niagara Falls on your shoulders. I'm just going to kneel down behind that shield of faith and hold on 
and trust that you're going to come through for me eventually. That's the faith that we're talking about. In fact, we want to take this a step further. Uh, flip over in your Bibles to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, if you're not familiar with 1 Peter, it's on page 1200. Page 1200 in the Pew Bible. 1 Peter chapter 1. Just to give, and here Peter's going to talk about the role of suffering in relationship to faith. And let, let me just give a little context. Let's start reading in verse 3. Peter says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth. We're born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and into an inheritance. Here he's talking about heaven. We have this inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed. So in other words, hey, let's rejoice because we've got heaven waiting for us through Christ. We're excited. But then look at verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Why does God allow us to go through these trials? Why does he send them upon us? Why would God give permission to Satan to go attack Job if God really loves Job? Why are these things happening to us? And the answer, well, one answer is, he wants to strengthen our faith. Anytime you're going through a trial and you're asking yourself, why is this happening to me? There's always one answer you know is for sure. There's a lot of reasons God does it, but there's one thing for sure. He wants to strengthen your faith in Christ. He wants you to see what a great God he is and to hold on to him in the midst of these trials. You see, we want to build up our temporal lives. I want to improve my portfolio. But God wants to improve my faith. I want to add an addition onto my house. But God wants to add an addition onto my faith. I want to tighten up my abs. But God wants to tighten me to tighten my grip on Christ. Because all this world is going to pass away. Portfolios and houses and church buildings and ministries are going to burn someday. But Christ is going to endure and faith will endure. And so God wants us to improve in that area which counts for eternity, which is trusting in his goodness to us. And so these trials come specifically to teach you how to use your shield. That's why they come. God wants to strengthen you in the use of that shield of faith. So we have to have that shield of faith. We have to have that trust in God, even when things don't make sense to us. You can't see a lot from behind the shield. It's right here. You can't see where things are coming from, but you know that it's there and that God is going to bring you through it. All right, shield of faith. We've got to move on. I could just go and go on that one. Let's look at uh, verse 17. One other piece of armor that we need in the spiritual battle. Not only do we need a dependence on God that says, God, you carry me over Niagara Falls, but verse 17 says, take the helmet of salvation. Every good soldier has a helmet. Your head is vulnerable. You get hit in the head and, you know, you're down. The head is a very strategic area in combat, so you have to protect it. And here the imagery is that we're shielded, our heads are shielded by salvation. We take on the helmet of salvation. I mean, we should define salvation, too. That's one of those kind of churchy words, isn't it? 
you got to be saved, right? You know, <laughs> salvation, you know, and it's like, Christians are always talking about salvation and being saved and are you saved, brother? And, you know, I've been saved by the blood of the Lamb. You know, what, what are they talking about? So maybe we should, like, try to break down salvation. If you had a five-year-old, how would you explain salvation to them? You know, that kind of question. Uh, and, and, you know, maybe this is one way of looking at it. I was thinking about what salvation is. The basic concept of salvation has two parts. We're saved from something by something. Salvation, we're saved from something by something. So if I said to you, oh, I was trapped in the burning building up on the third floor. There was fire right outside my room. The smoke was there. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't see. And suddenly the ladder came up against the window, and this firefighter climbed in and grabbed me and pulled me out, and he saved my life. You, you would understand what salvation meant in that context. I was saved from something, fire. I was saved by something, the fireman. Or if I said to you, oh, my, my daughter... She had this, this tumor, this growth, and, and it was really in a bad place in her body, and we were really scared for her. We didn't know, if this, you know what was going to happen to her, but the surgeon, oh, he did such a great job. He saved her life with the surgery. You would understand what salvation was. She was saved from disease and death, and she was saved by the skillful hands of the surgeon. So I think when we come to salvation here in the Bible, the salvation, that word is all over the Bible. Jesus talked about our need to be saved. The apostles talked about our need to be saved. So, so we can ask the same question. What are we saved from, and what are we saved by? And what are we saved from? Well, let's look at that first. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. I've gone to this verse a couple times, but it's so helpful. I think it's so clear. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. This is what we're saved from. If I could keep dangling that uh, preposition out there. What are we saved from? Ephesians 2.1. It says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Very quickly, I, I see four things we need to be saved from in this passage. The first thing we need to be saved from in this passage is sin. Chapter 2, verse 1, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Or verse 3, All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Sin is a binding, confining, destroying force. And we need to be saved from it. This is most evident in, um, for, for example, addictions. If you've ever struggled with an addiction in your own life or you know someone who has, uh, you, you, know, you see the way addiction is a bondage, whether it's an addiction to alcohol or drugs or a sexual addiction. You, you, you've, seen, you've seen how it tra traps a person. But you know, it's not just addiction. It's little things like pride, self-righteousness. No one can tell me what to do. No one can tell me, you know, that attitude, materialism. Um, uh, bitterness towards somebody and unforgiveness. I mean, there's, sin takes all kinds of forms. The, the essence of sin is the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, God said to Adam and Eve, you got the whole run of the place, just don't touch that tree. All right? Don't touch that tree. And Adam and Eve had to choose. W would, they, would they touch that tree or not? Would they trust God or would they become little gods themselves and decide for themselves what was right and wrong? 
And, and the essence of sin is that we take things in our own hands. And Jeremy says, I'm going to do it my way, God. And yeah, I may, you know, I may read some of the Bible and pick and choose a few things that I think might be helpful to me, but I'm going to do it my way. That's the essence of sin. My way, my terms, my strength, my power, trusting in myself. And all of us need to be saved from that. We, we are all trapped in sin. Every single one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But it's worse. Check out the next one. Ephesians 2. It says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live, verse 2, when you followed the ways of this world. So I also need to be saved not only from myself and my own sins, but also from the world system. In other words, society. There's this kind of uh, false Rogerian idea that people are inherently good. It's just that society makes them bad, and, and your society has corrupted you. But, you know, that's it, just so inane. Anyone can think through that one. I mean, obviously society is corrupt because we're corrupt. You know, where did society come from? Did it come from outer space? Society came from our hearts. You know, the reason we have a bad problems in the justice system or problems in the government or corruption in our institutions is because it's made up of us. I mean, evil in society comes out of evil participants in society, and we create this thing. It, it, it's, you know, it's, it's like the matrix. We're trapped in this thing that, that we've created and we s submit ourselves to. And just like in that movie, those people are all plugged into the matrix, you know, we're kind of plugged into this whole system. And so, yeah, we, we give credence to it, but it also enslaves us. I help create the society, but the society then creates me. And so I'm trapped not only within myself, but I'm trapped within the world system in which I live, this broken system. But it's even worse. Look in verse 2. There's a third thing we need to be saved from. Not just sin and the world, but the devil. That's what we've been studying in Ephesians. It says in verse 2, And of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. So, in a sense, encapsulating sin and the world is this, this satanic power that's at work in through the world system. And notice, I love that phrase, he's at work in those who are disobedient. And I've said this before, but, but to have Satan at work in your life, you don't have to wear a pentagram and, and black lipstick and listen to Godsmack. I mean, all you have to do is be disobedient. I just have to have an attitude. I just have to be rude. I just have to be self-seeking. And Satan can just use me like a hand in a worse than that. Here's the even worse news. Not just do I need to be saved from sin and the world and the devil, but look at verse 3 at the very end. It says, like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. The fourth thing that I need to be saved from is God. The wrath is talking about God's wrath. When the Bible talks about wrath, it doesn't mean some peevish, ill-tempered God. It means God's just, righteous hatred and judgment of sin. God is a holy God, and he hates sin. He hates it. As well he should. If he didn't hate sin, he wouldn't be a good God. God hates sin. He judges sin. Bringing sin into the presence of God is like bringing a dry stick into the presence of a 30-foot bonfire. It's, it, you know, it lashes out against it, as well it should. And so all of us are under the wrath of God. All of us, because we are sinners in the world system, enslaved to the devil, we all deserve hell and God's judgment. I know some of you are thinking, oh, come on. It's Christmas Sunday. <laughs> 
We hear it, hellfire and damnation, you know, pastors yelling at me. Can we just, you know, talk about the baby Jesus and, you know, Christmas and, and nice things? You know, well, what do you think Christmas is all about? You think it's about eggnog and Bing Crosby and sleighs and magical hooved mammals, you know? <laughs> do you think that's what Christmas is? Christmas is about a Savior who came to save my soul from the wrath of God. That's why it's worth singing about. That's why we have this great holiday. We don't like to believe in hell as Americans. Actually, I think the survey I've seen, Americans believe in hell. It's just Americans don't believe they're going there. <laughs> you know, you know hell, is for, hell is for, you know, terrorists. Hell is for Saddam Hussein. That's what hell's for. But, you know, we're, we're, you know, we're not... But, you know, of course we think that way. Of course I don't believe in hell because I'm trapped in sin, the world, and the devil. One of the effects of being in this matrix of destruction is that we can't see our way out of it any more than the, the people in the movie in the matrix realized they were in the matrix. So, of course I don't believe in hell because it's part of the blinding effect of it. Uh, Soren Kierkegaard, the, the Danish existentialist philosopher, he told a, a cool parable once. He said, he, he said, our age is kind of like a bunch of people who went to see a variety show. And the first act comes out, and people cheer. <sighs> it was great. Then the next act of the variety show comes out, and it was even better, and people cheer, and act after act. And pretty soon people are just screaming and laughing and having a great time. And near the end of the show, the, the manager runs out, and he says, Ladies and gentlemen, I'm, I'm sorry to tell you this. The, the theater's on fire and you need to leave. You know, just leave the theater quickly. Everyone goes, ah! <laughs> you know, no, no, seriously, let's get out. <laughs> you know, and just swept along with the whole thing until all were lost in the fire. And so this is, I wrote this down so I get his quote right. Kierkegaard said, and so will our age, I sometimes think, go down in fiery destruction to the applause of a crowded house of cheering spectators. And it's not just our age, it's the human race throughout history. This is our destiny. So we need to be saved. <laughs> That's what we need to be saved from. So what are we saved by? Who could possibly rescue us from this? Yoga? Meditation? Penance? None of that can save you. The only thing that can save us is God himself. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. The best conjunction in the whole book, verse 4. But, <laughs> oh, I'm so thankful for that conjunction. But, because of His great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. By God's kindness toward us. And how did God do it? God, God is the one who saves us. How does he rescue us? What is his mechanism for rescuing us and saving us? It's in verse 6. Notice a repeated phrase, okay? Verse 6. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us in the heavenly realms in Christ, Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. It's in Christ. It's in Jesus. It's in Christ the way God saves a damned sinner like me is through the cross of Christ. Because what was happening on the cross is that Jesus was nailed there and he was taking upon himself all of my sin. 
that I deserve judgment for. And he was taking the full fury of the world. All of the leaders of the world were railing against him. And the devil, and this is the, the, the worst part of all, he was taking the wrath of God upon himself. Do you want a glimpse of what hell is like? The best picture of hell I know in the Bible is Jesus on the cross, the sky turned black, and the Son of God crying out, Lama, Lama, you know, Lama Sabachthani Elohim. He's crying out, God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Son of God crying out, where are you, Father? That is hell. It's total rejection from God. And he did it in my place. He died on the cross so that I could be saved and forgiven. That's our Savior. And so let me just ask you as I close here, do you have that Savior? Do you have that salvation? Do you have that Christ? There's a story told of Marie Antoinette when she was going to be crowned queen in Paris. And the order was given that as she rode to Paris for her coronation, there were not to be any sick or crippled people on the sides of the road because they didn't want to trouble her with looking at them. I thought, boy, that's not our king. Our king came, and who did he surround himself with? He surrounded himself with stinking lepers. He surrounded himself with prostitutes, with drunkards, with tax collectors. He took the blind and the mute and the outcasts of society, and he put his hands on them, and he embraced them, and he loved them and healed them. And that same Christ is alive today. His Spirit is here with us. And Christ, if we could see Him, you would see Him now through the Holy Spirit walking in this sanctuary, walking up here on the platform, walking in between the pews, just putting out His hand to touch and to heal and to forgive anybody who will come to Him and be saved. Do you have Christ because His hand is outstretched to you now? Will you outstretch your hand and take his and find the forgiveness and the healing that God can bring you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, there is no Savior like you. There is none like you who came among us when we deserve to be wiped off the face of the cosmos. Instead, you came and allowed yourself to be punished in our place so that we might be forgiven and set free. Oh, your, your love is just astounding. We, we can't even begin to talk about it or make songs about it that would do it justice. But Lord, I just pray that, that we would do it the justice it deserves by taking hold of it. Not just thinking about it, not just being in awe of it, but, but grabbing hold of Christ as our Savior, as our Messiah, as our Christmas, that we might really trust in Him. But Lord, I pray for anyone here this morning who is going through a fiery trial, who's going through a, a tumultuous catastrophic series of events in their lives. Lord, I just pray that you would give them a supernatural endowment of faith, that they might trust in you, that they might believe that you're a good God and hold on to you and not let go. Lord Jesus, we want to follow you and we need your strength to do it. And so, Lord, give it to us in great measure. We ask this in Christ's name.